In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. So God willing, today we're going to study the last chapter of First Timothy. It's only six chapters long. Um, does someone want to recap what we spoke about last time, or anything about the epistle of First Timothy that you can remember? It's not very long, so if you guys participate, then we can fill up the time. It's a pastoral letter from St. Paul. Okay, pastoral letter from St. Paul. And what does pastoral mean? Um, telling St. Timothy how to run the church, basically. Okay. It's like a personal letter to St. Timothy. Okay. What else? Giving him guidelines how to uh, run the church. Okay, guidelines of how to run the church. Because St. Timothy is what? He's a bishop. He's a bishop. Ephesus. So he's telling him how to run the church as a bishop. Good. He talks about how to select deacons, how to select priests, how to select bishops. Okay, he gave him qualifications for bishops and deacons, um, what qualities he should look for before ordaining. Okay, good. What else? The widows. The widows, how to care for the widows. So last week he spoke about different groups of people in the church. One of them was the widows um, and said um, that there was, a, there was a rank in the church, the rank of widow. And and that the widow had to be at least 60 years old and she had to be known for her good works and have good reputation. And then she would essentially be like a consecrated servant in the church for the purpose of serving other women in the church. And he gave some of the qualifications for that as well. Okay, good. What else? I'm trying to use up the time. <coughs> he tells women not to speak in the church. Yeah, except for like that one she wanted to. Yes, she. Yes, he says, and we spoke about what does that mean? Priesthood, the the priesthood. Okay, so, and the, the idea of not speaking in the church is referring to the idea of like not giving sermons in the church with the authority, like 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 the the the, the priest has authority and speaks in the church. Okay, uh, good. Um, Well, so he told, so not priests can have a little bit of wine. It's not like that was a rule for priests, right? But what did he say specifically? What did he say about the wine? For his infirmity. So St. Paul told St. Timothy because of his infirmity that he could have a little bit of wine. Okay, and what did we say about that? It's a medicinal purpose, right? It's a medicinal purpose. And again, it's not to say, again, I want to emphasize this, it's not to say that the church believes that alcohol is wrong. It's, it's not wrong in and of itself, right? But, but though it can be easily abused. So that's why we recommend for people to avoid it. And especially in certain cases where it can be a stumbling block to other people, we tell people to avoid it. Um, but, but it is not that the, the alcohol itself is wrong, right? It's the way that it's used. Um, good. Okay. Of people. He excommunicated people in chapter one. Who did yeah. he excommunicate? Uh, someone is Alexander, and I can't remember the first one. Uh, yes, Alexander and... Um, he said like he delivered them to the devil. Yes. Which also gives gu guidelines for like for the church now, if they have to excommunicate someone. Yes, so we spoke about how like the idea of, of delivering people to the devil or excommunication, separating them from the church, was not designed to be something 
like that was just uh kind of like like a, a wrathful or um you know like like attack against a person but it was intended to bring them to um to repentance and we mentioned how this was also like uh in first corinthians where saint paul um excommunicated someone who was living in sin and then f they stayed outside of the church for a time but then returned again um to to the faith okay um was it chapter one that he did that last verse yeah himenaeus and alexander okay yes okay good so um, in, in this last chapter, St. Paul describes some different social relationships in the church, um, but he focuses primarily on the uh, relationship between slaves and masters. Okay. So he says, Let as many bondservants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. Now, this idea... And we've talked about this before, but this idea of does Christ and does the Bible uh, promote slavery, right? This is a question that people will ask. Does it promote slavery? Because we don't hear um, a, a sermon by Christ essentially um, calling for the abolition of slavery. And we don't hear in any of the epistles of St. Paul um, speaking about the evils of slavery and how slavery needs to be abolished. Right. Instead, we hear um, him exhorting those people who are slaves to be respectful of their masters and also the masters to respect the slaves and to treat them well. So so what does like why is it that we don't hear that type of language to directly abolish slavery? And what does the Bible? How does the Bible see slavery? The Bible isn't trying to socially reconstruct society. Okay. So the Old Testament doesn't change, like it doesn't talk about abolishing slavery or the New Testament, but it's it's a it's a reality, right? But then the Old Testament specifically gave the Jews rules on how to deal with their slaves in a way that was a huge step up compared to what the society was saying which is like every seventh year you offer them to leave or um, to become free which is a huge you know improvement over what was there so the bible doesn't say that slavery is um okay it's not like saying it's fine it's just the reality is there are slaves so then how do we deal with it the other thing is that sorry the slaves at the time were not like slaves as we imagine them to be because of modern day slavery. Mm -hmm. It was kind of a job. It was just, it was not as bad, I think, as from my understanding. It, it wasn't racial, um, but it was because certain people could not afford their own, you know, could not afford to have to live on their own. So they would actually, in some cases, sell themselves into slavery um, by choice. Or if they had debts that could not be paid, um, then the only option they had was to sell themselves into slavery. So that, that was some of the ways that people became slaves. Um, so, but to the point that you mentioned about how, like, the goal of the scripture is not to reconstruct the society. But there are some things that you could say that are part of society. Like, let's speak about, like, homosexuality, for instance. It's something that is a part of society that is accepted by society. 
um, and it's a sin, right? So there, the, the, the scripture speaks about, and Christ speaks about, the Bible speaks about, like that this is wrong and it shouldn't be accepted in the society, right? So, so that's clear. I mean, you could call that to be a type of social upheaval or social reconstruction if you want, like to say, okay, we're going to remove like certain laws or we're going to, we're going to no longer accept certain behavior that has been accepted by society. But what makes the, the slavery different? Like, okay, it's accepted by society, right? But why, why wouldn't he come and say, but this is wrong. Like it's wrong to have slaves, to have slaves. It's a separation between man and God, mm-hmm. and therefore man and man, like man and himself, right? Like it, it, it. Sin is a something that is against the normal nature, normal order of the world, and anything that goes against that is harmful eternally to mankind. That's why something like homosexuality is something where we say, no, this is something we can't do. But when it comes to slavery, you can be a slave and be, you can be a king, you can be a slave, and both of those are situations which do not necessarily push you in one way or the other with with regard to your relationship with God. You can be King David and be a godly person. You can be a slave and be a godly person. Okay. Does everybody agree with that? Sephra? I don't know. I, because I feel like we've talked about so much of this that is pastoral. If this is a pastoral epistle, right? A lot of these things are not sinful. It's how to run your church, right? So why not include your people shouldn't have slaves, right? Like, this is all how to run a church. And so, at least within the church, like, we can't change society. But I don't see why we wouldn't say within the church, this is not acceptable. But if it's like Joe said, where it's like, you know, it's a form of employment, it's free will, it's, you know, it's they're not being abused, then okay. Well, but no, there was abuse, which is why always, like, whenever there's a mention of slavery, there's always, like, the exhortation to the masters to treat their slaves with kindness. Right. Right, so that definitely was something that was a problem. Um, and, and also the hatred from the slave to the master was also a problem, which is why that was kept being mentioned, right? And that's what's mentioned here, right? So the focus here is let's let's exhort the the slaves and the masters to treat each other well, right? But he didn't say we should cancel this altogether. Wasn't there a verse where Paul told them that if you're a slave and you can be free, then take the opportunity to leave? Mm-hmm. So maybe the focus is less on the action of the one who's enslaving someone but rather the focus is on the one who is enslaved to leave so in that in that verse he's speaking about if you have the opportunity to leave meaning lawfully have the opportunity to leave and gain your freedom like not to run away but to to lawfully have the 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 opportunity to gain your freedom do so there's nothing wrong with that but even if you do not right then he spoke about how like um, a person who is a slave is the christ freedman and the free the free person is christ slave right so 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 yes, I mean, there's definitely the view that being free is better than being a slave, 
right, in the scripture. I mean, nobody says that being a slave is good. It's never said that slavery is good, right? But it also is not directly attacked as an institution itself, right? So um, I, I would say that the, the way that the scripture tries to abolish slavery is not through direct, like, protest or direct, like, um, speaking against it in that way because it was something that was so entrenched in the society. Kind of like in the Old Testament. Even though in the Old Testament, um, marrying multiple wives, for instance, it was, it, was, it was not allowed. It was not allowed. But so many people did it, including people who were seen as being very godly people, like King David. Okay? It was something very entrenched in the society, and it was difficult for, for it to just be abolished in terms of just like with the stroke of a pen. It's like, okay, well, what about all these people that already have multiple wives? What, what should be done with them? Um, what are, you know, like, like it wasn't a simple thing to just say, moving forward from now, this is wrong, and everyone who's done it is wrong, and, and you just have to completely change society all in one day, right? That would have been very difficult. Instead, there are certain things, and I would say that slavery is one of them, where the rebellion against slavery was more through love. It was an exhortation to love. And that over time, if, if in the church and if the believers really lived the life of Christ, then slavery would erode away on its own. Like people would see that the concept of slavery is like dehumanizing, right? It's like taking away the free will of a person, right? And that over time, the, the, the institution of slavery would just fade away, in, at least among the believers, right? Because it's something that's always spoken, not against the institution itself, but spoken about well, how should we deal with one another? How should we treat one another? How should the master treat the slave? How should the slave treat the master? And so, and even in the case like of the story of Philemon and Onesimus, okay, when, when St. Paul was, was speaking to Philemon and told him to, to accept Onesimus again, he told him what? Accept him as a brother, right? Accept him as a brother. So even though there isn't direct language speaking about, you know, let's go protest and let's go, you know, change the laws and let's do this and that. But the, the appeal was more toward, like, what is the Christ-like Christian way of treating people, which would, over time, erode away the idea of the slavery in, in, in the minds of the people. So. so going back to the example of, like, polygamy, you don't really see people in the New Testament having multiple wives. So how did that phase out I guess in society and then like to that the parallel of how did slavery or did slavery ever really phase out I mean the the first point was Christ I mean when he was speaking for instance about the Old Testament right uh, and then he uh, even like the Ten Commandments and he would say well in the Old Testament it said such and such but now like this is the law or he said because of your hardened hearts uh Moses allowed you to write your wife a certificate of divorce, but now I say to you that you know, like, like there should be no div no divorce, right? So, so the the transition for some things happen at the New Testament because of the Holy Spirit. The coming of the Holy Spirit allows us to live to a higher moral standard than what was what the people were able to do in the Old Testament. Um, as far as slavery, I would say, I mean, even in this country, slavery existed. You know, even among Christians, right? So. I can't say that slavery 
there was like a universal like suddenly like okay everyone now stopped having slaves even among believers um I, i'm not sure like in the in that part of the world like after this like what happened in terms of slavery i'm not i'm not really sure um but uh, but i do want to emphasize that it, the bible doesn't promote slavery because some people will say that it does it doesn't promote slavery it it it, it, it promotes godliness among the institutions that exist in the world right so even if you know like we could say that slavery is not a good institution right but even for those people who are living in that institution the the focus was not just on like okay secure your freedom by any means necessary like yes secure your freedom if you can but still be respectful and still be um obedient and still you know like because ultimately that is the means by which people will come to Christ like all of this was for what all of it was for the spreading of the salvation so like for instance a believing slave if they were obedient and respectful to their master even though yes they are giving up their freedom to do so but maybe that would actually bring the master to Christ maybe the master then would see the good behavior and the the service and the love of the slave and bring that person to Christ another example even that St Paul gives between husbands and wives he says you know if a woman has an unbelieving husband she has the option to leave him if she wants or she can stay with him and through her good works through her her submission through her love that she can win him to Christ right so again what is the focus you have your rights right you have your rights and if you choose to use your rights no one's going to tell you that it's wrong to use your rights but what is better than using your rights is to um maybe tolerate something for the sake of love to win someone to Christ um is better you know same the same principle applies when he says you know if one person forces you to walk one mile walk with him too like i don't have to walk the two i didn't have to walk the second mile the second mile is the mile of love it's one that i choose to do not because i am compelled to do it's the one that i choose to do in order to to win someone in order to show them truly love you know if 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 somebody asks me to give them one garment of clothing i give them the second garment why i don't have to do it because the second one is love the first one is is being compelled kind of like when we say like even in tithing like what is the law the law's tithing is 10% and anyone who gives 10% is fine like they're 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 like god is going to say yes you're you know you're doing the right thing but if someone chooses to give more than the 10% then everything above the 10% right is what it's love because no one is compelling me to do it someone who is giving the minimum in something it's not wrong it's right they're doing the right thing they're doing the good thing but but you can look at a person who's doing the minimum and say why are you doing it are you doing it because you really out of your heart you're doing this or are you doing it simply because you have to do it but anyone who gives more than what they're required now this is a person who's doing doing it out of love same principle would apply for like a person who goes to work right you're forced to work a certain amount of hours in the day and the person who is going to clock out instantly the moment that that number of hours is done it's like yeah you're doing your job you're doing your work no one can argue against you a person who chooses to stay longer than that maybe even if they're not going to get paid for staying longer they can say it's because they care like they care about doing a good job maybe right so this principle can be applied in a lot of different things so here also for the slavery it's like do you have do you have the right to leave yes maybe you have the right to leave okay you have the right not to be a slave um but if you choose to stay right then what is it that you are going to do maybe through your your example through your good works through your submission and obedience then you will win the master over perhaps okay so in the end um the focus here 
when he says, for those under the yoke, was to serve as a model of Christ, even to the crew masters. This is why he mentions that you should be um, kind and obedient, not just to the masters that treat you well, but even to those who are cruel, right? Which, of course, is much more um, difficult. And in, in, do in doing so, God is glorified. Um, so a person who is under this harsh treatment of slavery is still able to show love, right? Uh, and would be able to win the hearts um, of other people. Um, when we speak about Christ himself and what is it that he accepted for the sake of, um, for our sake, right? Um, he accepted a type of slavery, if you want to call it, um, because becoming a human being um, for him was extremely debasing, right? Like it was something very, uh, you know, you, not to use the word dehumanizing, like undeifying, if you want to say, like, like it, it is beneath him. It is, it is beneath him to take the form of a human being, to become a human being, right? So, so, but the reason he did so is, is out of love. And we see him not e just in the incarnation, but like what is it that he did while he was here? Like he would do things like wash the feet, right? Which again is debasing. It's like saying I'm, I'm less than you. And feet were very disgusting, you know, like people didn't have pedicures, right? So like feet were very disgusting for him to sit on the ground and to wash the feet of the disciples, but he is doing it willingly. So the distinction here is, the is, is if something is voluntary or not. The moment that something becomes voluntary, then it becomes uh, an act of love and it becomes tolerable. Like if I do something by my will, by my choice, then it is tolerable for me to do it even though it is difficult compared to if I'm compelled against my will. And that's why a lot of times like when we're in difficult circumstances, like let's say a person is in a job that they really like are suffering in and they're struggling with, um, or d having to deal with a person at work, like their boss or whatever, who is like a very difficult person to deal with. If you have the attitude that you are here against your will and, and that you hate being here and you want to get out as fast as possible, then it will make you feel like this whole environment is intolerable for you because, because you're here and you don't want to be here. But if you try to look at it a different way and you say, God has allowed me to be here, God has allowed me to deal with such person, wherever they are, whether it could be a spouse, it could be a child, it could be a parent, it could be a friend or a coworker or whatever. God has put me here and he wants me to serve this person. And you begin to convince yourself of this such that your interaction with this person is no longer involuntary, but starts to become voluntary. Now, maybe the situation is the same. The person is the same person, the difficulties are the same, but your attitude has changed toward them, right? Your attitude has changed toward them, and that makes all of the difference. You know, like, what is the difference between a monastery and a prison? It's the will. It's the will. Like, I choose to be in one, and I chose, choose not to be in the other. But as far as the freedom that I have, in both cases, I'm stuck in one place, and I can't leave it, right? But those people who are in a monastery, they choose to be there. Right, they they want to be there and they see the good things of being there. Whereas people who are in a prison, they don't want to be there. They want to get out as fast as possible. Though their freedom is just as limited, in terms of not being able to go out into the world. So so the attitude that we have plays a huge part in the way that we perceive life, right? 
A person who is a slave but sees themselves as being like, I'm doing a mission for Christ and that my goal is to bring another person to Christ, then they will be able to, to see that even their life is a blessing, that there is good in what they are doing. But a person who doesn't see any good and only sees the bad, then the same exact experience will be just so difficult and intolerable, intolerable for them. And those who have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather serve them because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. Teach and exhort these things. Okay. So he's saying, if you have believing masters, let them not despise them. Who is he speaking to? The slaves. He's speaking to the slaves, and he's saying, do not despise the master. So why would, if you have a believing master, why is it that the slave would despise him? You might feel like they're going to go easy on them. Who's going to go easy? The, the, like the master? The masters, yeah. But that wouldn't be a reason to despise them. Like, why would the slave despise the master? Who is a believer? They might think that like the believer should know better than to enslave them. Yeah. Be like, if we're supposed to be brothers in Christ and then you are a master to me and like you are ordering me around and you're taking away my freedom and I'm your property. Right? So so there was this sense that like this is wrong. You shouldn't you shouldn't do this. Right? And maybe I could tolerate this from from a non-believer because they don't live according to the law of Christ. But from you, who is a believer, why is it that you are doing this? Maybe that would be a reason for them to be despised, okay? Um, but rather serve them because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. What does that mean? Who are the ones that are benefited? The masters are benefited by what? By the slaves doing what? Submitting to them. Right? So he's saying, when you, as a believer, slave believer, submit to your master, then they are the ones benefiting. They are the ones benefiting. Why? Because they see your example. Right? They see your example. So again, the idea here is what? If you are going to convince that this master who is a believer, that slavery is wrong and that you shouldn't have a slave, how is it going to come? Not through the protesting route, right? But through the example of the, the, the slave, right? So if at one point the, the, master, the, the master decides that he wants to let the slaves go because um, out of love, right? Then that's not going to happen because he's forced to. It's going to happen because he's convicted to. He's convicted to change, right? And then he's telling saint timothy teach and exhort these things meaning this is uh, an ongoing issue okay teach and exhort these things and as i said when saint paul was speaking to philemon he told him to accept onesimus as his brother right as his brother so the master is benefited by the 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 submission of the slave in love if anyone teaches otherwise and does not cons consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, 
but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain, from such withdraw yourself. Okay? So he's saying, if anyone is not consenting to the words that he's saying, if, 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 the, if this approach, okay, which he's referring to as wholesome words, like, like infused with the love of Christ, right? And, and, and even the words of the Lord Jesus Christ and the doctrine which accords to godliness, what? If a person is rejecting this, does not consent to this, um, that means that he is a proud person, knowing nothing, right? Someone who's unable to um, be humbled or to live in humility. Someone who focuses so much on the arguments and the, the, the fightings and the, the divisions and, and, and the, the, the speaking against different things instead of just accepting in humility. And this is difficult for us because we um, are very quick to protest. We are very quick to point out the injustices. We are very quick to, you know, civil disobedience. We are very quick to argue against the laws we are very quick to do so you know like instead of accepting to be wronged you know even when 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 the bible speaks about um the believers like filing lawsuits against each other right he says why not rather be wronged rather than to sue each other in court in front of unbelievers and give a wrong witness to the people who are outside the church that see that even in the church that we are fighting with each other and bringing each other to court, for instance, right? He's saying, why not rather be wronged? And the same principle, he's like, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather suffer the injustice, right? Again, the, the whole focus is different. The, in, one, in one focus, is all about the salvation of the world. And if my focus is the salvation of the world, then I'll be willing to accept any injustice. I'll be willing to accept you know, any suffering, Exactly like what's how St. Paul lived, right? Willing to do anything, experience anything, suffer anything for the salvation of people. Like that's one approach, right? The other approach is myself. Like what is the most comfortable for me? What is the best for me? What is my rights? Um, and, and, and what is good for me? And this is not to say like that we don't have rights. I mean, we obviously have rights. And it's not wrong to pursue our rights, right? But in some cases, maybe um, pursuing our rights is uh, less important than living in submission and humility. Because here he is saying anyone who does not consent to the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, he is proud, doing nothing, but is obsessed with the disputes and arguments, right? Over words, um, uh, over words from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, and so on. Okay? So when it says here, that godliness is a means of gain, right? Uh, when he says, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. What does this mean? Probably like financial gain, like that they could somehow get rich. By it could be. It could be like someone is somehow getting financial gain from their dissensions, their divisions, their arguments? Yes. What else could it be? Is it like 
gain of a status because the beginning starts off with if anyone teaches otherwise Mm -hmm. so is it like this fake righteousness so that people can follow them and they gain some sort of power yeah they're gaining some authority or power prominence because they are they they and 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 saint paul struggled with this a lot because there were many people who were against saint paul and they were jealous of the authority that he had and so they would argue against him for the purpose of gaining followers right they wanted a following they wanted people to follow follow them and so um, the idea that godliness is a means of gain, meaning meaning, like the the fake godliness or the 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 preaching of what people would believe to be godly, like a person who comes and preaches their own philosophy and saying this is the means of godliness, th- this is the right way to live, and so on, and to establish a following after them. But the re- their purpose is not really to teach the truth, because they say what. They are destitute of the truth. Their purpose is just to gain for themselves. You know, maybe you can see in our modern like understanding is like uh, a pastor, for instance, who gets very, very wealthy um, because of their preaching, right? And is the goal here really that he's wanting to, you know, teach the word of God, or is it because he is getting his own personal gain? Like I, I remember. <laughs> I mean, uh, I'm not going to say who was, but there was an interview with one of these like uh, very rich pastors and they had a private jet um, and the private jet was paid for by the church like through the donations I mean all the money that he gets is from the donations and so like there was an interview and they asked him like so of course the interview is like a, a non-christian like group like the news or whatever like they would ask him like why do you need a private jet you know and he said um, because when you're flying you want to be able to stand up and praise God. But when you're on a commercial jet, you can't do that. So on a private jet, you can do that. That was that was his answer. <laughs> but but the idea is that it is possible to make money, it's possible to be powerful through the peddling of the word of God. It is. Um, you just need people to follow you to give you money, right, to do so. The people who rile people up and tell them about like, okay, they are they are prophets and they will you know, tell you that what the end of the world or people who claim that they can heal, you know, people who are sick, uh, people who, 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 you know, who, 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 who know, like, uh, like who, who, who prophesy and tell you what your future is or whatever the case might be. Um, they are, they are trying to just win people to themselves. They are destitute of the truth. Now, godliness with contentment is great gain. So here, here now he is switching gears from speaking to um, about like masters and slaves and, and he's speaking now about those who are wealthy, the instructions to those who are wealthy. Okay, Godliness with contentment is great gain. So um, living a godly life, right, but also being content with what you have. And the idea of contentment is specifically a message that's sent to those who are rich because the ones who are tend to be the least content are actually the ones who have the most. Um, because it's easy for us to start to get attached to the things that we have. Whereas maybe <coughs> people who have very little um, are are satisfied with the little, right? Whereas maybe people who have a lot are not satisfied even with what they have. So godliness with contentment, um, that we are seeking to live a godly life, but we're also content with whatever God happens to give us. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out, and having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. 
So what do you think about this? When he says, having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. Is this practical? Yes? No? I, I mean, I feel like back then, like, life was so much simpler. Like, no one really wanted the newest car or anything like that. So maybe back then, like, food and clothing, maybe shelter, too, is all you need. Mm -hmm. But not anymore? <laughs> <laughs> That's what you're there for, Joe. <coughs> I mean, what is the problem that we have with this? Why why do we struggle with this verse? We ha we're very demanding. We have a lot of things. and But see, it goes to the point that I was saying. Because we have a lot, we're also not content with what we have. Like, we're like maybe somebody who was content with just food and clothing, they would never desire to have anything else. Not just not desire. It's kind of like you... Once you taste something, now you long for that again. Like once you taste something for the first time. Whereas before you tasted it, y you didn't know that it was there. You didn't know what it was like. And you were happy to live without it. But the moment that you taste it for the first time, now you feel like I can't live without this. I have to have this. right? Even though I was happy before I had it, but I, but I, but I can't now. you know. And, and I'm not saying this is wrong per se. I'm just saying this is the way that we are. Like imagine you have uh, a woman who doesn't have a child and she wants a child but she's living, you know, without the child and she's okay. And then she gets a child and she's happy with the child but then something happens and the child dies. Is she going to go back to the way that she was before she had the child? Like she's going to go, go right back to the way it was before? She's like, okay, well I guess you know I don't have a child now. No. Like, she's going to live the rest of her life in mourning for the child because she tasted what it was like to have that child, and then the child was taken, right? I mean, that's, that's very normal human behavior, right? When we have something, we enjoy that thing. When the thing is taken away from us, we struggle, right? We struggle to adapt and be content without it, which is why, like, what Job said is very powerful when he said, you know, the Lord gave and the Lord took away, you know, blessed be the name of the Lord. Like, he's like, yeah, he gave me all these things, um, but now he decided to take them away again, and so I'm still content. I'm still content without. And I think a big part of this is um, not uh, placing our trust in these things from the beginning and not to become attached to things from the beginning. And this is difficult. Once you become attached to something, it's very easy to let go of it. But if when we receive anything we kind of have this kind of tenuous grasp on it. Like, we're like, you know, this isn't, this isn't really mine. It's something that could be taken at any time, and it actually will for sure be taken, because actually everything we have will be taken, right? What, what's one of the things that makes us so afraid of death is that in death, everything is taken. Like, everything that I know is taken, including my body, right? Like, including my reality, everything is taken. So, of course, in our attachments to the world, 
Um, the concept that there will come a day where everything, everything is taken away is absolutely frightening, right? And then we console ourselves by saying, yes, but it's not just that everything is taken, that we will also be given everything better than what we had, right? Like in heaven, we, we will be given everything better than what we had. And we console ourselves by this hope that we will live in a place where it's not just a place of loss, it's a place of gain. But the idea of loss in general, and people live in the fear of loss, like some people will be so afraid to lose something that they have, even though there's no indication that it, they will actually lose it, but they're just so afraid of losing it that they will live stressed out because of that, maybe for their whole life, right? So again, this represents an unhealthy attachment to things. And so here St. Paul is making it very clear. Like we brought nothing into the world, meaning we don't have anything. Like by our nature, we, we don't have anything. And everything we have, God gave us. He gave it to us. So everything we have is a gift, right? So that's why when he speaks about like the parable of the wicked vine dressers who were hired by the master to work the vineyard, right? So they were benefiting from the work. They were benefiting from the vineyard. They were eating of the land. They, they, were, they were occupied with that. They were receiving a wage from the owner, right? But they were not the owners. And so when it came time for the owner to say, give, uh, give me of the fruit of the vineyard, they were like, no, we don't, we don't want you to take it. It's ours, right? It's ours. Because they became attached to what was not theirs. And this is the same way that we behave. Whenever something is taken away from us, maybe our, our response is, no, this is mine. Like I'm upset at God because he took away something that is mine. When we read the parable, right, it seems pretty obvious that those workers are at fault, right? It's like you're, the master is sending his servants to come and take of what is his, and you're killing him. You're beating them. You're abusing them, right? You're saying, no, I will not give you of what is yours, right? But wh when it comes to us, um, we, we demand. And when, when, when God takes away something that was never ours because everything we received is from him, it was never ours, but we just got used to it. We got accustomed to it. We, 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 we get comfort from it. And so when God took it away, um, we become angry and upset, right? Again, because we don't have contentment. This is why he's saying um, godliness with contentment is great gain. And why is it great gain? Because people think that gain is gain. Like gain is like, okay, give me more. Gain is give me more money. Gain is give me better house, better car, better clothes, better whatever it is, gain. That's what we think of gain. Gain means to increase. Like I want more things and then I am increasing the more things that I have. But he's saying what is an actual gain is contentment. Because in contentment, if we can achieve contentment, then we are happy no matter what stage of life we are in. And whether we have or we don't have, we are content. Because contentment is actually far harder to achieve and far more valuable than all of the money in the world. Because the people who have many possessions are not content even with what they have and continue to seek more things, right? So it's like the, the illness of, 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 like of desiring more is still there. It doesn't go away when you're actually given more. When you're given more, it remains. When you're given more, you're not content with the more. You, you still want even more. Whereas the person who is content, whether I receive more or I don't receive more, I'm happy with what I have. I'm just happy all the time. I'm content with what I have. And this is why this is greater than having many things. And it's not to say that God does not bless us with riches. 
that God does not bless us with material possessions because he clearly does, right? He clearly does. He, he, having, having money is, is not a sin and receiving that from God as well. It's not wrong to have. But the problem is that when we receive it, what do we do or what is our mindset toward it? That's the, the thing that becomes a problem. It, it reminds me whenever, was it Jesus where he said, um, do not store for yourselves worldly treasures but spiritual treasures. And I feel like Paul didn't really live on this earth thinking that he belongs to the earth, that he was just visiting, passing through the earth, and that his citizenship was in heaven. And so his investment and his time would go towards spiritual and was not really interested in the worldly because he's just visiting. You yeah. know, like as a guest, you don't expect much as a guest. When you go to someone's house, you expect food and clothing and a shower, and then you're going to leave to go back home. Mm. So maybe the way that he saw his visitation on earth is what led to his contentment. Yeah, definitely. Right. And, and cl it's very clear in his life that he never considered himself to be living on the earth and the earth was his home. I mean, that's definitely for sure. And I think that's a big part of the, the problem that we have with attachment is because we begin to feel like we belong here. You know, I used the example one time about like, you know, like let's say you're driving from here on a road trip to go, I don't know, Disney World, wherever you want to go. Um, and then as you are driving along the way, you stop in a city to rest um, and maybe you spend the night there. But then you wake up in the morning and you're like, you know, this city's pretty nice. Um, and you start to sightsee in that city and you start looking around. You're like, you know what? I don't even want to continue my journey. I just want to sit here and stay in this place. And, and that's kind of like what we do is like we, we instead of thinking like this is just the journey traveling from here to the ultimate destination, we we become so enamored with the place itself and we lose sight of where we were originally traveling. So definitely, yes. Um, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Okay, so what does this mean for us? What does this mean for regarding rich people? We need to be cautious with the money, yes, because having money can make us to love money. Now, not having money also can, someone can love money, but as we said, like when you get a taste of something, you become attached to it even more, okay? So, and it says, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. So it's not saying that the being rich is wrong, and it, when it says, it's not saying money is the root of all evils, but the love of money is the root of all evils, okay? Um, so, but when you ask the question, Okay, how many do not desire to be rich? I mean, especially here, like in the West, the desire to be rich is like universal, right? Like there's, um, it's, 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 it's almost seen as like a virtue. It's like taken for granted. 
Like like everybody wants to be rich. Everybody wants to have a higher salary. Does anyone say I don't want a higher salary? Does anyone say I'm happy just where I am? I don't need to ever increase in my salary. I'm completely content with the salary that I have. I never want a bigger house. I, I never want a nicer car. I never want any. I'm completely happy with the way things are today. Right? So the desire for more. Okay? Now, that's not to say that we can't have some kind of desire for good things. But if we don't receive those good things, if, if God allows us to remain in the status that we are, what where where do we go like wh- are we are we content again and with and happy with what we have received from god or do we c- do we blame god do we compare ourselves with other people um and so on um i'm going to find this verse for you um work that we can ignore our spiritual life and spirit i mean our families our service like it overcomes other other good values in our life i think this is the bad desire there and this is the definition of love right like how do we know if we love something we love it based on what we sacrifice to attain it right so so if you if you if you love money or if you want to know if you love money then you look at what you sacrifice in order to have money right so if you sacrifice your spiritual life in order to have money then that's a love of money for sure it reminds me in Deuteronomy 8 where it says when you are when you have eaten and are full then you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you beware that you do not forget the Lord your God and then later it says when when your heart is lifted up and all that you have is multiplied and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt I think it's the forgetting the Lord is the temptation really that leads to all those things it talks about. Yeah, for and forgetting that God is the one who gave us the good things, for sure. Um, King Solomon in Proverbs chapter 30, this is in Proverbs 30, verse uh, 8, he says, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food allotted to me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. And this is contentment. This is to say that, like, I don't want to be rich, because maybe being rich is going to cause me to forget God completely. But I also don't want to be poor. Like, I want to have my needs met. And I think this is a healthy view of, like, money. Is we want to be, we want to have our needs met. Um, and we're happy with what God gives to us. And we don't compare ourselves to other people. Comparing ourselves to other people, of course, is one of the, the most destructive things. Um, St. John Chrysostom says, the apostle says, those who desire to be rich, and not those who are rich, but rather those desiring wealth. There is a person who has money and uses it wisely and without overestimating its importance. Thus, he gives it to the poor, for example. Such a person cannot be blamed. It is only the greedy that is to be blamed. Right. So again, St. John is speaking about um, that just having wealth in itself is not the problem. Um, Buna, someone posted on the video saying uh, being rich will prevent you from going to heaven no being rich will not prevent you from going to heaven but it's the desire for <coughs> the desire to be rich or if the riches cause me to 
go away from God. Like we know King Solomon, for instance, he was very godly, right? But then when he became very, very wealthy and powerful, he went astray from God. And actually this would apply to him exactly when he would say, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Like the sorrows that we experience because we place our trust in wealth. And it's like placing your trust in, you know, like in the book of Haggai when, when God was rebuking the people for paying too much attention to their own houses and not building the temple. Um, he says what? You place your money in a bag full of holes. Right, like, like what you what you imagine that you're doing for yourself in pursuing your financial success and your security, um, and thinking that you are, you know, laying up treasures for yourself, you're actually putting your money in a bag of holes, and then it's all going to fall out, right? And this is kind of these being pierced through with many sorrows. Like we can spend our entire life pursuing wealth, um, and 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 never achieving it, and just living in sadness and, and sorrow, right? And Ecclesiastes also speaks a lot about this. He speaks about how, like, um, God will take all of the wealth that had been accumulated by a wicked man and after he dies to distribute it to the righteous, right? Like, give it to those who are righteous, like, who didn't even labor for it, you know? Uh, the book of Ecclesiastes talks a lot about this subject. But there is a sorrow associated with desire, and every time we desire something, whether it be money or something else, there is this kind of sorrow that comes with it. The sorrow of wanting something that we don't have. And it can become an obsession, whether the obsession to gain money, the obsession for a relationship that we don't have, the obsession for uh, children, if we don't have children, the obsession for a spouse, the obsession for something that we are seeking from God. It can become an obsession to the point where I lose all peace and contentment in the moment. Because even when God wants us to be content, or sorry, when God wants us to pray and ask for things from him, he wants us to be still content with what we have. Like if you, the, the prayer of Hannah, for instance, when she's praying for a son, and she's saying, if you give me a son, I will dedicate him to the temple. Okay, At the end of her prayer, um, it says that she was comforted. right? But her comfort did not come from receiving the son. Because at the end of the prayer, she hadn't received his Samuel yet, her son. She hadn't received him yet. But she was comforted because she felt like God heard her prayer and she was contented in, in the fact that God heard her. And God, if you want me to have this, then grant it to me. And if you don't want me to have this, then I will be content if you don't want me to have this. But my prayer has been heard and she had faith and believed, right? So, so the idea of like the sorrow that we have that comes from desire that are unmet, right, is real. But, but in those sorrows, we turn to God and so he grants us contentment to be at peace with the moment. The, this, in this moment, in this day, I don't yet have the thing that I desire from God. Um, and I, I, but if, if, we, if we don't pursue that peace, if we don't pursue that contentment, then we will find ourselves pierced with through many sorrows because we're always going to want more and we won't maybe receive that that we want. But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness. Okay, so the believer is the one who should flee from the love of money and all the activities that maybe would cause us to fall into it, which could be a source of sorrow, and instead use the time that we have to grow spiritually. Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Right, That should be our focus and not just on the acquisition of wealth. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you are called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So the spiritual life is a fight. 
And he says this very clearly, that it is a fight. So the, the person who is wanting to, you know, as a believer, is wanting to cruise through life and coast through without experiencing struggles or temptations or trials, this is unrealistic. The, the, f the fight that we are fighting is against our own nature. The fight we are fighting is against the invisible forces of darkness, against, the, against Satan. We are fighting this fight, and it is a fight, right? But the goal of the fight is eternal life. Why St. Paul was able to sacrifice his life um, and, and not focus on his own needs, not to feel entitled for anything, not to feel abused, not to feel like angry with the way that people were treating him is because his whole focus was on heaven and nothing else mattered. Like he actually saw heaven and he's like, I saw, I saw it. Like, what are you going to see else? Like if you've already seen a vision of heaven uh, and you know that that's what's awaiting you, you're not going to be moved by anything that happens on the earth. Like the earth is beneath you. Like you walk on the earth as a king. There is, there is nothing that can move you. And it doesn't matter what you have because what you have is actually heavenly, is eternal, and is not given to you by any man. So it doesn't matter how people treat you. It doesn't matter what you have or don't have on the earth because what is laid up for you is beyond anything that you can have on the earth. Um, it's like an athlete who is so focused on like winning right in the end that they spend their whole life training um, and, and sacrificing and giving up things because what they seek to attain is greater than the comforts that they might have um, otherwise. I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep this commandment without spot blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ appearing. So Christ's sacrifice when we remember it Christ's sacrifice encourages us to continue fighting this fight, right? Because, because here he's reminding him, Christ is the one who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate. So, so if Christ experienced suffering in the world, so also we will, um, and, and that we strive to keep all of the commandments of God until the end, which he will manifest in his own time. He who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. The potentate means like the ruler or the monarch, uh, of course, referring to, to Christ. So he's saying at that time, which is at the second coming, Christ will manifest his true power and authority and reveal his judgments to everyone. And at that time, this is where there will be justice. This is when all of the desires of everyone will be met and, and, and everyone will be sanctified and purified. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for, th for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. So uh, St. Paul did not want, in the conclusion of this, for people to think and interpret his words as a condemnation for those people who are rich. Okay, so but he, so he's saying it's it's not wrong to be rich, but there are certain things and guidelines that you should keep keep in mind. The first is don't be arrogant. Like don't feel that because you are wealthy and rich that you are better than anyone else. Okay. Also, don't depend on your own wealth. Don't let your wealth be your source of security, because he says what um, that ri riches are uncertain. Nor to trust in uncertain riches, meaning you might have wealth today but it might be taken from you tomorrow. You might lose it. 
for one reason or the other. Don't put your security in the wealth, but in God himself. Um, also, true riches is to be found only in eternity, right? Um, it's, it's, it's ultimately there that we are satisfied and fulfilled completely. The, the money does not bring us to that satisfaction and fulfillment. And then he says, be generous. Like give of your money to those people who are in need. And if you follow these things, then even though you are rich, but you will not be condemned, then the riches is actually a gift that is given to you from God. O Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. By professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith. Grace be with you. Amen. So this is a question. What is these profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge? What is he referring to? Yes, ignorant worldly ideologies. That's like very well put, right? Because the world is filled with people who claim to have answers, right? Answers for the human condition. But God is the creator of the human. Like God, God is the one who created us and he knows all of the things that go wrong with us and all the things that we need. So all the people who are claiming that they have answers and if we follow their way, then we will have happiness and, and, and good things and whatnot. These are the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. The, the so-called people who are the experts that are going to tell us how we should live contrary to what God has said. So by professing it, some have strayed. Meaning it's very easy for those, especially now, like considering like how communication is so prevalent. It's easy for a person to just go online and start to absorb all kinds of different beliefs and theories and religions and philosophies and ideas and from influencers, from experts, from people who are claiming that you know they have the answers from people who are very influential and and to not critically think. You know, one of the problems is people don't have the ability to critically think. Be like, okay, this thing that I'm hearing it, is it matching what I know? Is it compatible with what I believe or is it false you know and 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 people are so taken by who is saying it like if it's like this famous person who's saying it like it gives so much more you know like power to their words when it really shouldn't you know like uh, I don't know why like when you have like a famous basketball player or something like go and advertise like a soft drink like does that make the soft drink better I don't know like I never understood um like like that that mentality it's like well i'm gonna drink it or i'm gonna do that or i'm gonna think this way just because this famous person was paid money to hold this drink in his hand now that drink is going to be so amazing you know like the, the way the way that people are fooled into into believing different things right so this this is like one way that we should live as believers in the world is believing that everyone around us wants to purchase our minds right they want to own our minds they want they want us our minds to be enslaved to them this is what they want so so for me to be careful means what it means that i have to always 
assume that the world around me is trying to deceive me in some way. And I have to think critically. Okay, what is it that people are saying? Wh how does it, is it compatible with what I believe or not? And if I don't know, I can ask. But, but, but to, to, to learn how to deal with this, right, so that we are not so easily um, deceived. Okay, that's the end of the epistle of First Timothy. Um, does anyone have any final questions? Okay, we can pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day. We ask for your blessing, and we ask, O God, that you would forgive us our sins and have mercy on us. We ask, O Lord, that you protect us from the world and from the spirit of entitlement and the spirit of um, greed and the desire always to have more. We thank you, O God, for all the blessings that you give us. We ask, O God, that you grant us contentment and that we seek, O Lord, our salvation and the salvation of those around us more than we seek anything else. Help us to always have good relationships with one another and grant us, O Lord, always to be pleasing in your sight. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The love of God the Father, the grace of the only begotten Son, our Lord God and Savior, Jesus Christ, the communion, the gift of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace, the peace of the Lord be with you all. Amen.